Welcome to Champions and Challengers, discussions on the legal edge of fintech, hosted by Greg Listini and other attorneys from Bricker Graydon, a full-service law firm with more than 200 attorneys with expertise in financial services, insurance, and insurance tech law, and clients across the country, where we feature CEOs, founders, legal advisors, and industry professionals exploring business, technology, regulatory trends, and legal trends that are reshaping the financial services industry. Welcome to Champions and Challengers, a FinTech review of innovation in regulation. I'm Liz Martini, an attorney practicing in the insurance regulatory, corporate, and government relations space, and I'm a proud member of our financial services industry team at Bricker & Eckler. Today, we are very pleased to be joined by Celine Hitchcock-Gear, who is the president of individual life insurance at Prudential Life Insurance Company. Celine is a veteran of the insurance industry and is very passionate about financial literacy and providing consumers with solutions to help them overcome financial challenges at all stages of life. Celine was formerly an executive and head of the broker dealer at Emeritus Life which is where she and I had an opportunity to work together. And she then joined, or rather I should say rejoined, Prudential Life as president in 2017. Celine is a visionary with a focus on finding opportunities to meet consumer needs by creating alternative business models and a culture of innovation. She currently serves as a director on several boards, including the American College of Financial Services Board of Trustees. Thanks for joining us, Celine, and great to see you. You as well, Liz. It's so wonderful to be with you today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes, I think the last time we saw each other was at the Chicago O'Hare Airport as we were <laughs> running through frantically trying to connect our flights. That sounds about right. You know, since COVID, I will tell you, I've had few of those experiences, uh, but you know, those are fond memories. I sometimes miss all the hustle and bustle. Yes, me too. All right. Well, before we dive in, why not walk us through how Prudential connects with consumers? Yeah, thanks, Liz. So, you know, Prudential is a pretty diverse financial services organization today. And I'd say that one of the key efforts that we have is to connect more broadly with consumers and really meet them where they are. So we have a traditional business model, as you might be aware, where we work directly through advisors. That's, that's pretty common in the retail space for financial services, especially insurance and retirement. We also have an online presence. And so if you go to crew.com, you'll see some exposure there. Um, but we also have a real dedication to thinking about how to grow in the digital space, which, you know, sometimes we conflate all of these things to be one thing and they're really not. So, you know, digital is more mobile apps and more ways that people can connect anywhere, not just through laptops. And so I'd say, you know, in the way that we're doing business today, uh, we are trying to hit every channel and every avenue where we think we can help connect and engage with customers. So by expanding in that fashion then, um, and expanding your market reach, you are better able to reach consumers by offering all the different ways to connect with them. That's right. And what is so critical about that today is, you know, our vision is to really be a global leader in expanding access to investing, insurance, and retirement security. Those, those would be our three 
uh, biggest lines of business and places where we think we can bring value to people. What we know for sure is that our traditional markets and our traditional advisor-led environments um, lack a breadth of customer set, both in terms of income and assets and diversity. And these other channels really allow us to dig deeper into ways that we can more broadly um, seek out that aspiration of actually improving access for all and thinking about where we can meet a variety of customers where they are and in their time frame. So that's what's really critical to us. And I'd say, um, you know, when you uh, put my description out there as an industry veteran, that's 30 plus years. I sometimes choke when I say that, that number, but it's true. Today's marketplace is so advantaged by the change in the way consumers are comfortable using digital tools that for the first time in my career, I actually believe we can make a lot of this happen because we're not fighting uphill and just trying to change our own business practices. We're actually getting in alignment with the way people want to do things today. And it sounds like um, these aren't future plans. It's happening now at Prudential. Is that right? Right now. Um, and I would say that, you know, we've had a lot of things on our roadmap over the past few years that are actually coming to life. Um, a couple of things I would highlight in that regard is, you know, um, we're almost going to be 150 years here pretty soon. And we're going to have a nice big celebration okay. around that, which means that for 150 years, we know how to underwrite life insurance. It is the oldest business at Prudential. Underwriting is a rules-based, medically uh, background-based process where insurers take in a lot of information and then give people back an answer around what kind of offer they can make uh, based on their health, longevity, et cetera. We're taking that 150-year-old dinosaur and we're kind of turning it on its head and we've built an algorithmic tool uh, that actually uses a variety of data sets that can take a 30-day process down to what's actually a few seconds when these models work and that algorithm goes, you can do that in a few seconds and then actually get a policy out the door the same day. That is uh, game changing in so many ways, but largely because we can actually do this um, without getting medicals, exams, labs, taking people's time and use both data and electronic health information to make that happen. So that has been a six to seven year journey so when we talk about where we are today, it is really pulling forward a lot of effort and innovation that's gone on, you know, the last 10 years or so across the company to put more resources to work, to be where we are today, to be able to have some of the things that we'll talk about here shortly out in the market um, to really meet consumers in this kind of new embraced digital environment. Well, it's great to hear that a large company like Prudential has been able to you know, quickly adjust to rapidly developing technology. Tell me the ways in which Prudential has managed to be so nimble in, in doing that for being such a large company. Because as you know, the larger the ship, sometimes the slower it is to turn. Oh, yeah, don't we both know that? Yes. <laughs> That's absolutely right. You know what? So you know, you mentioned I returned uh, to Prudential in 2017, and and one of the things that really attracted me back um, from our prior environment was just the level of resource and commitment to growth. There are a lot of companies who talk about it, but may not necessarily, you know, put the efforts behind it to realize their aspirations. Prudential is in a very different place, always looking to find ways to squeeze out the old things that we're doing and find efficiencies there to actually fund 
the newer things that we need to be able to do. And so, you know, when I was talking to the folks there, um, I was just reminded at how wonderful it is to be in an organization of the size and the scale of a credential, but then that actually was making the right commitments for future growth and development to not be satisfied with size and scale of today, but to really be forward looking and doing it across the enterprise. So, you know, we've all been in environments where you have projects or initiatives, but they're more localized in the business group and don't get a lot of care and feeding, right? And it's hard to, to work uphill that way. The things we are doing today at Prudential really come from top-down enterprise momentum that is really propelling all of our business units forward. So we've had a large transformation effort focusing on efficiency and cost saving, all for the benefit of trying to make new investments in some of these environments. So it's, it's really wonderful. And you're spot on though, right? Hard to do in a large organization, but much easier when you have everybody on board and you have everybody using the same language and focusing on common goals. So it's actually happening. Great. Well, speaking of having everyone on board, what are some of the legal and regulatory challenges that have uh, been presented by trying to implement the state of, you know, state of the art technology in the way that you have? Yeah, and um, you know, and just for the, um, the the sake of the conversation today, you know, I'm still a crackerjack lawyer by by training, so I have fun with all the rules and regs in our business, and occasionally, uh, you know, poke back in and around some of these things. I would say there are a couple that really stand out, Liz, right now. Um, one is, and I want to just reflect back for a moment on some of the advantages that we were able to capture. Uh, during the difficulty of the COVID period. So while that was very distressing, caused a lot of harm and, um, and, and great impact to our country, we lost so many uh, people to the pandemic, we had to very, very quickly shift our business activity to allow for the new COVID dynamics where people were at home. Uh, advisors could not meet with people in person. You could not go out, for example, and get a medical exam or get your blood drawn. These, there were so many barriers so the good news for us in trying to address this is that we had, again, over some time, been working on electronic business submission capabilities that allowed us to quickly pivot. And so we were able to do that. In that regard, we also worked very closely with our regulators around how that was going to work, reminding them of that capabilities and really trying to ensure that we were meeting all of the rules and the regulations that were coming forward during that period around customer protection, including those things that would make sure a policy would not lapse during this period for a difficulty in terms of payments or even getting out to the mail. We had to work very, very closely on all of those issues, but were greatly advantaged in many of our conversations with regulators around this electronic capability. So as much as we wanna push and drive and do these things, we have to do it in step with where the rules and the regs take us. So we have to very carefully uh, select those electronic health record providers that have the right privacy protections. Um, data and security are probably our single biggest problem areas to solve with regulators, the way that we uh, take data and use it, get all of the consumer uh, sign-offs and requirements around what we are doing with their data. Some states, as you know, are a little stricter than others and we work across the entire US. So those are challenges that we will just need to stay in front of so that the things we want to deliver in terms of an ease of doing business experience can actually be realized. And the final one 
uh, that's a really big one, and we really have to spend a lot of time here, is you know, connected to the innovation I mentioned earlier around our underwriting engine and using algorithms and data. We all know and are very sensitive to the fact that data can be biased. Uh, how you use it, how you organize it, what algorithms actually do uh, can be tinged with things that look and smell like discrimination and impact. And so you have to really be mindful of that. Uh, it is our intention and effort to continue to talk with and work with our regulators in a way where we can gain confidence across our business system and across this industry to allow us to work toward the benefit of our customers and getting more openness uh, with our regulators to allow for some of these innovations. Uh, in spirit, they're there. In reality, there are a lot of guardrails that are still up and we have to be able to prove out uh, that the work we're doing is helpful to consumers, that we have the right protections in place, uh, that the data sets that we choose do not have disparate impact like zip codes or other identifiers that might either have racial, demographic, or other biases embedded. Uh, so we're working very hard at that. But those are some real issues that we have to sort of in concert uh, in what we're doing today, stay, stay really close to those conversations and the rules and regs coming out as a result. So it sounds like it's a, a constant balancing act between respecting the consumer's rights, yet also being able to provide them with much needed technology correct so that they can get the financial products that they need yes and and beyond that even you know in, in our efforts to really want to make things easy for people we'd love to use things like texting or other chat features uh, but we have real challenges so you would know from our old broker dealer days that you have to collect and keep all kinds of customer communications Texting presents a unique challenge because most of the industry doesn't quite yet have the tools um, to actually archive those communications. And so in a lot of cases, you find roadblocks. And so those are the kinds of things where you say, gee, we're in such a wonderful modern world. Um, we know the ways we can engage with people, but we have to pace all of this to really stay in keeping uh, with the kinds of uh, protections and balances you know, that sit behind the scenes for a lot of our regulatory and legal structures. You mentioned how the pandemic forced people to quickly change technology. Um, in a way, I guess you would say that the pandemic acted as a catalyst for uh, new technology as well as improvements. I often wonder where we would have been about 10 years ago wow. if the pandemic had hit then because we weren't nearly as advanced. Can you comment on that? Yes, you, you are so right. Um, again, when we literally left our offices a late Thursday in March, you know, grabbed a few things, none of us knew we wouldn't be returning to the office. So the very first thing we were able to do is plug in from laptops, you know, some 25,000 credential employees got right back to work the next day because we already had these tools in motion. Um, I can recall from my first tour of duty at Prudential in the late 90s, we had a massive laptop program trying to roll out laptops uh, to our financial professionals. And so the two challenges were one, um, we didn't have a lot of things laptop ready in terms of functionality and facility. Email would have been the biggest thing of the day. And two, 
financial advisors didn't want to use them. <laughs> so, you know, we've come such a long way from that. And it is it was really remarkable how quickly we were able to shift and have had the time to build everything from electronic applications to electronic submission. You know, and the final thing about that, Liz, and, you know, I chuckle about our advisor experience. The biggest thing I think COVID did for us in the industry was force advisors to actually use the technology that has been out and available to them now for quite some time. We have a lot of advisors who are very relational, very in-person oriented, right? Would just, you know, sit and want to talk to people and have others in their teams, collect information, do all these things. Um, we have spent the last two years really in earnest working much, much better uh, with folks in the sales uh, organizations because they have now figured out some of the benefits of these things. They can see the time saves. They can see the accuracy. Um, you know, uh, in, in the old days, you know, we talk about NICOs. I know you remember that word well, not in good order business. Uh, we have significantly reduced that because things you put into a system that says to you, hey, you can't get to question three because you skipped X, you know, question two prevent, you know, a lot of those delays and gaps. But boy, what a push we got from COVID to actually get the, on the sales side of the business folks to use the tools. And what a luxury we have had um, over these, you know, last 10 years or so, to your point, building the kind of infrastructure and capabilities uh, with the hope that we would get to adoption. And I'd say we're largely, we're largely there now uh, in, in a great deal due to COVID. So it sounds like a lot of successful planning was yeah. done and yeah we'll, we'll, we'll take we, we, we will take that <laughs> nod you know we had uh, we had a lot of plans for how we were going to actually quote unquote force some of these things over a period of several years if you can imagine that um and so always a very thoughtful uh and, and wise approach just trying to keep engagement uh with advisors up but we were able to just sail right through that so uh, that was a, that was really a good news story so what, in your opinion, is the number one hurdle that insurance companies need to get over in order to dive into the fintech deep end? Well, yeah, what a, what a great question that is. Um, the first thing is, and, you know, I sit on a lot of industry discussion groups and talk to a lot of my peers. You know, I'd say there is real reality now um, to insurance carriers understanding that at the heart of business today is technology. It is not um, optional. It is not a, well, maybe, and then it is absolutely a necessity. And in some pockets of what we do, I'd say we've even made a bit of a leap to suggest that, you know, we might be on the bleeding edge of kind of shifting to thinking of ourselves as technology first enablers. You know, we've got um, so much going on again around our, our digital environments and trying to better understand mobile technologies and how to engage with people you know, I think that shift is really critically important. You know, one of the albatrosses we carry in the business, though, are significant legacy systems that are built on old technology and old codes and programming uh, environments where, you know, quite frankly, we still sit and talk about end of life use. You know, I've got uh, things inside of Prudential that are uh, as old as me, which is pretty old now, uh, you know, in terms of systems we use. Hard to imagine, but true. And, you know, we've got 7 million customers almost within the Prudential Individual Life Insurance business. You can't just turn that off, right? You have to be able to elegantly make these, um, you know, adoptive changes to say, how do we push our business forward? 
continue to maintain relationships with customers across a wide age group, right? So we have people who've done business with Prudential for decades will be in their 80s and 90s. You know, some of them will turn on, you know, into their phones and turn on into computers. Others still want mail. So you have to really just continue uh, to grow and develop, put technology to work in places that where it makes sense, bring your business systems along um, as quickly as you can, and then really stay focused on that customer view so that the enablers you can provide actually attach, right? So you can put a lot of good things to work as, as we talked before with advisors and they may not get used, you know, making sure that as we have these, you know, very catchphrases these days around meeting people where they are, that those experiences are complemented with the right kind of engagement through technology that makes sense for that customer. So there is plenty to do, but I am encouraged um, at every turn by the conversations that we're having in the industry. And again, to what we discussed before, how we're bringing regulators along. It is so important or we will not meet uh, the kind of customer needs the way I think we can uh, otherwise. Tell me about the company's um, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. So many companies now, um, fortunately, are, are focused on how to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in the workplace, as well as outside, and how is technology an enabler of that? Yeah, boy, it's, this is so timely. Um, you know, we continue to have a lot of push in society for equity, and we continue to have far too many examples that remind us of why that is so important. And, you know, from a pure life insurance perspective, you know, when we talk a lot about COVID and, and Liz, you probably have heard this, um, our insured population did not get hit nearly as hard as the general population from COVID, largely because it's a very different demographic set that, um, you know, are sort of purchasers of life insurance the way we've experienced today. So the first hurdle being working with an advisor. Again, despite the fact that we have digital capabilities most people buy insurance through a person, which means you first have to know a person, right? An advisor or otherwise to have that conversation. Um, and a lot of that is still white collar workers who through COVID could like myself, work from home in a technology environment. Whereas COVID really largely and disproportionately impacted people who were what we now call frontline workers, bus drivers, uh, food service workers, teachers, all kinds of folks who every day must be in person to actually perform their jobs. We learned in the insurance industry that we do not cover as many of those people uh, for individual life. Not as true on the group side. So our group insurance providers had some different experiences because they do cover a wider variety of people. But on the individual life insurance side, uh, we learned that our purchasers were healthier and more protected from COVID, uh, both because of the kinds of jobs that they did but also because of some of the healthcare advantages that they would have had in terms of being up to speed on information, um, you know, maybe having more access to vaccines if that was, you know, something they were doing early on and, and so on and so on. So as we think about equity and inclusion, it is so vitally important that we stay current and up to speed on kind of where we are seeing impacts and where we have to keep reminding ourselves of where we should be focused. So in this larger conversation, uh, Prudential overall issued nine racial equity commitments. Uh, a lot of things we had been working on previously. We have a very long and wonderful 
uh, history and the city of Newark, where we're headquartered in terms of giving and community engagement and have had tremendous um, outgoing dollars uh, through our impact investing and our uh, Prudential Foundation. But in 2020, like many other organizations, we issued nine racial equity commitments that were really divided into three groups. Statements around how we were going to actually support our employees, statements around the kind of societal impact that we wanted to have, including for the first time thinking about things like criminal justice reform and places that we should extend some of our government affairs and, and legislative reach. And then thinking about how we were gonna make sure we had equity and inclusion in our customer ranks. And that particular line um, is, is where I get engaged heavily from the business side in terms of trying to make that come to life. So we did a couple of things. One is I mentioned, I think earlier, we had a lot of transformation initiatives around you know, how to squeeze out efficiencies and dollars to fund new things. Well, in all of those transformation initiatives, we embedded in our structures and we used a lot of technology tools questions to call out whether or not there could be or would be any impact to certain groups of people, any bias that might have come out so that we were very thoughtful, we kind of call it inclusive by design, very thoughtful in our work process of actually trying to call out any issues that might come from some of the initiatives we wanted to pursue so that we would not find ourselves with disparate impact. Extremely important. We talk a lot around Prudential around embedding things that become business as usual. So again, they're not afterthoughts. They are right in the heart of what you were doing. So that is something that um, we have been doing diligently. Uh, the second thing that I did specifically in the life insurance business was we struck up a conversation about bias and underwriting. While why that is so important is to the, some of the comments I made earlier around who do we cover for insurance number one. But then once we get applications in the door, how do we think about the information we have? And so we have a wonderful uh, underwriting experience where we took one of our lead underwriters. Uh, he authored a series of conversations that then led into some wonderful dialogue and conversations that impacted some of our policies and procedures to ensure that issues around unconscious bias did not drive business outcomes and that we felt very comfortable that as people came through Prudential's door they would be treated well. Um, some of the best work that, that I have seen and very specific around making sure we were doing the right things. Uh, the final thing is I am a co-sponsor of a major enterprise effort um, that we're calling Blueprints to Black Wealth, which is all around uh, in our customer aspirations, digging deeply into the issues of financial security for black Americans from the lens of the kind of racial injustice issues that we faced in financial services from decades and decades of practices that have brought us to a point today where black Americans um, are the subject of this conversation around a racial wealth gap, meaning that white Americans hold more wealth in the US by an incredibly large margin than black Americans. That has tremendous impact, um, not just around access, but outcomes for families and communities. And so our effort is to dig very deeply in understanding those issues, uh, making sure we think about and overcome some of the trust barriers that happened as a result, whether it's credit score bias issues, redlining that's occurred, um, you know, over decades, access to mortgages, all the kinds of things, you know, if we had a long list, a uh, long bit of time, we could get that list going. There's quite a bit of reality around the lack of trust with Black Americans in financial services 
uh, again, dating back a couple hundred years, even from the way some banks failed, uh, had, had assets and, and money moving outside of the Black community. There's just so many things to pay attention to. We have taken a lot of research and background and paired that with a very uh, important part of Prudential's organization called Inclusive Solutions that spends all of their time and effort working with community groups. We're taking those data sets, we're taking our community engagement efforts, and we are partnering that up to reintroduce Prudential in community to say, we may have worked with you on a philanthropic um, issue, we may have been at a meeting for you, we may have provided some educational seminars, but please do remember Prudential is a financial services company. We believe we are trustworthy, we want to keep earning your trust, but we can actually help bring you from the place you are today, wherever that may be, because we can provide education and services and all kinds of things through inclusive solutions, to a place where you can and should consider buying some of the financial products we have. What's so important about that, Liz, is a lot of times people get kind of cynical. Oh, well, you're doing this to, to, to do business and to make money. You better believe we are, because my belief is unless we take people's money and put it to work, we have failed, right? We have solutions for people. So the fact that we have $12 trillion under insurance gap and we continue to have GoFundMes and we continue to have these wide disparities around how people experience, you know, one of the worst days in a family or, you know, in a community's life when you lose someone, when you lose someone who is an income earner and you have no backstop to how to stay in a home, continue educate, whatever your goals are, when we do not understand that what we do for people in financial services to provide security, um, we don't get there unless we help them put their money to work. So we are all about trying to overcome that trust barrier, find the right solutions, pull people through a process that can be, you know, kind of daunting and unfamiliar to really make sure they are in a better position going forward. So absolutely, we will be looking for uh, new ways to do that, continue to build trust in the Black community, look for better outcomes through putting those dollars to work in the right ways. You know, we all work for the benefit of customers today. That's one of the better things in regulation that we've all seen in terms of language and effort. Um, but I'm really excited about that because that brings an impact level to what we do at a very obvious point, meaning that we're going to do business now in communities where we haven't before with great enthusiasm, knowledge and awareness and real commitment to making sure that we are a help and an assist and a support mechanism, uh, not just, you know, sort of cherry picking at the highest, most affluent people who can already afford what we do. So we are bringing the full suite of prudential capability across this effort. We have three target pilot markets right now in Detroit, Atlanta, and greater uh, Newark to actually put some of this in motion so that we can scale it larger. But um, I am very heartened by the depth of effort going on around prudential in earnest uh, to actually make a different impact than what we've had in the past. And technology is a tool that lends itself very well to closing that gap. All about that. And we see in our sales, we have more digital sales uh, with diverse customers than any other channel. So whether that's a little safety and anonymity or convenience, we'll, we'll peel that back. But we absolutely know we are better able to engage uh, with all types of groups of people with access provided through means that they can secure when they want and how they want. 
And it is proving to be uh, one of the differentiators uh, that we seek. So whether it's use of social media to get the message out or to bring chats to life for people, uh, whether it's a transaction capability through the digital tools that we are building, we can round out this story very nicely um, while allowing people to actually, you know, come in a, um, you know, come in a way that's convenient and comfortable for them that we could never do without technology. And the other thing about technology, Liz, is the data sets that we are able to acquire to actually get to deeper insights and understanding. Um, you know, we still do old school surveys and all those kinds of things, um, but actually getting real data behind what we're doing so that the analytics can prove out, you know, how these things are working is vitally important. So yeah, we are, we are in such a better place today through technology to get to some of these outcomes and complement the things that we are doing. Um, it's, it's, it's really remarkable that it's come to, coming together the way that it is. Well, and it's great to hear that Prudential is already very sensitive to the types of algorithms that are, are used uh, in technology, which is one of the concerns, one of the primary concerns that I've heard from, from yes. regulators in, uh, yes. you know, creating, uh, you know, bias and, and discrimination because of those. But it sounds like, you know, Prudential's already well yes. aware of that and, and is testing for that in advance. We are. And, and we have to be very mindful of, you know, innocent things can turn on you, right, quickly. So even something simple like zip code uh, can be used inappropriately. Uh, credit scores, we know, can be used inappropriately. We're even looking at BMI, body mass index, which is a, a health indicator of sorts. But that equation is built on a more European-based model of human genetics, right? So what is a what is a type and size and typical, quote unquote, body mass? It has some ethnic origin. So we have to just continue to peel back these layers in our business and make sure that as we're seeking to serve more people, right, we actually isolate those things um, that can turn one way or another, stay away from things that might cause us difficulty, and then look for the right types of data sets that can be good proxies, again, to drive the kind of convenience we want for people, but to not skew it in a way that it becomes harmful. So, you know, this is all new for me. You know, I, I am not an AI data science geek or guru, but I'm learning a ton and we have wonderfully talented people in these areas doing, doing that, but we all have to stay vigilant, right? On making sure that what we put in practice actually tests out uh, to be a, for benefit of people, not harmful. Well, and it sounds like being more exacting with the types of data that are used is actually beneficial yes. to consumers. Yes. Because it, there's and, a closer yes. match. That's right. Yeah. So for example, Liz, that's a, that's a really great call out. Um, in the algorithmic uh, scoring tool that we use for underwriting, um, you might know generically, you can use a social security database or a CDC type database and you'll you'll come up with a, uh, an average age of death, right? Right now, I think we lost a couple of years mortality due to COVID, let's call it 72, whatever it might be. If you say, well, everybody's gonna die at age 72, right? You're 100% wrong every time because that, that isn't quite there. We get to a high degree of probability with the tool set we have uh, through this algorithmic underwriter because we took all of our long form insurance data, which gives us tremendous health background, 
and all of our claims data. And remember, Prudential as a large insurer has a, a, a ginormous <laughs> set of data back there, matched our claims data against that. So our algorithm has actual science and, and you know, real math around what we were told in the application versus when and how and why someone died. Uh, that is a tool unique out here in the marketplace today. It, it, it gets us an incredible degree of um, accuracy. I'll leave it at that as we get proof points and, and data things published. Um, but it is remarkable. And it is the type of advancement that will help us, again, bring to life some of these opportunities, opportunity sets we have really about making it easier, making it faster, but also making it helpful because the data sets that we're using have none of the difficult markers that we discussed in actually getting to those conclusions. So you are so involved um, outside of Prudential in your, your spare time. I, I noticed that you recently participated in CAPCO's Women in Wealth series that celebrates women in the workplace. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how that ties into narrowing the gaps that we've discussed? Yes, I love that. I love that question. So we um, have worked with CAPCO, or I have personally now worked with CAPCO probably some 10 plus years, and uh, they are a uh, terrific consulting firm that does all kinds of data engagements, digital engagements, and general insurance, regulatory, legal work, very, very wide uh, global organization. And they have made a commitment within their executive ranks to actually pull this question up about women in financial services and uh, women preparing for their financial lives to a level of conversation that is helpful in doing a couple of things. One is reminding us that women are different as consumers and women have different outcomes in terms of their financial reality and trying to peel that back. So in the panel that I participated in, we were very uh, curious uh, amongst us to talk about why is it that we have to pay attention to these differences for women um, and what does that mean for us in financial services? Well, the first reason is women tend to live longer, tend to inherit wealth, and tend to feel less confident in their ability to manage financial decisions and manage their financial lives. And we sat on a panel of experienced women and came up with an incredible number of examples amongst our peers and in our professional ranks of women who fit that profile. You would suspect that people who work in financial services might have a different feeling or different experience. And the answer is no, it is still not there. And so the conversations that we have are all around trying to make sure that women know several things that are critical. One is we make different life choices and that in, impacts our financial reality. Sometimes we have children and leave the workforce for a time. Sometimes we take time out to be a caregiver. Sometimes we may not take a promotion or go fully into our career aspirations because we're trying to balance home life. All of those income drivers means in aggregate, we've got some 15 to 30% less income to put to work for our retirement. So we start a bit behind. We then layer on a few things we also know about women from psychological studies and real up-to-date work that's been done that we tend to be a bit more conservative in our financial outlook. So we may not take as much risk when we invest. So you pull those two things together, uh, less money to work for retirement, more risk averse, so less likely to make it up 
through investment strategies. And the whopper is we're going to live longer. That trifecta means that we have to talk about women and finance in very different terms so that we can close and bridge that gap in a way that women can address it um, psychologically comfortably, emotionally comfortably, and feel okay asking questions where in many cases, what we learn is we feel stupid asking the question. So, so vitally important to have these conversations, bring up the issues that are in front of us, allow for the kind of dialogue where women start to feel more comfortable uh, you know, with their family members at work, talking to financial advisors to actually get through some of this. And of course, we have female financial services consumers who are not like that at all. But the lion's share of the surveys, the data studies we have, modern 2022 and 2023 touch points says we still have those three big issues to overcome. And we need to do so in a way that we can see uh, better financial outcomes for women specifically, because we do not approach this the same way as our male colleagues. We also know one other thing that's important. We still have a very male dominated financial advisory services system in terms of delivering advice. And in that regard, uh, what that often means is, and again, uh, not a bias of my own, but data and study driven, you will find numbers um, anywhere from 80 to 90% turnover of a financial advisor where, where the male and the family passed away and that financial advisory relationship was with the male because there was not enough time spent with the surviving spouse or partner to have created a relationship. And so that person who is now alone doesn't really feel like they have anybody and typically go shopping, will not stay with the person that they don't believe, spent time with them, paid them any attention, uh, may have even been in the meeting and felt uncomfortable, right? There's a lot of studies behind this. That is a pivotal issue for us in financial services. We don't necessarily need more financial advisors just to close that issue, but we need more financial advisors who are female to have the right conversations in families, in community, right? In the places where this could make a difference. So is that yet another way in which all the FinTech efforts technology in general can can help close that gap and it and is lessen those challenges. It really is. And again, we, we, we talk about this, um, I think, in, in the right ways where we can find places to connect and authentically engage are the places that we're going to have more success getting these questions out and open, you know, getting conversations started and then putting tools in people's hands to play around. OK, so if I think I have this issue, you know, what can I learn about that? You can Google this, you can Google that. Oh, here's a place where I can start to think about retirement income. Here's a calculator. Here's something that will help me go. So how do we take these conversations, you know, pull in experiences along the way through technology that allow for, again, through comfort and convenience, a place to ask questions, um, you know, and to actually get after some of this uh, where you might otherwise have anxiety, for example, asking a human or doing it in person, finding these ways to really put a lot of support and structure around the issues that we're aware of. Well, this has all been really great to hear. Um, and I'm so happy that you agreed to join me today during this podcast. I know we've covered a lot of ground. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share? 
Well, one is I am so inspired that a law firm is hosting such a broad and diverse conversation about what's going on in financial services. And you know, the legal and regulatory environment we live in is framework for all. So, uh, you know, I appreciate the ability to kind of flesh some of these things out in, in more terms uh, than just those, but uh, really appreciate the time to, to engage with you, Liz. Wonderful seeing you again. And, you know, I am uh, grateful for the opportunity and look for as many of these as I can to just try to get the word out, you know, get a message out that, you know, really is focused on um, hope and optimism that we can, you know, seek out uh, new frontiers, make change for people, uh, and really bring better outcomes to life. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Celine. I so appreciate your time and all your insights, you know, on technology. And not surprisingly, uh, you and Prudential are at the forefront of that. Uh, we're doing our best. <laughs> we're doing our best. Well, that's all for today's episode. And thanks to our audience for listening. And we hope you join us soon. Bye now. Thank you for listening to Champions and Challengers, produced by Bricker Graydon. Join Greg Listini and other Bricker Graydon attorneys for our next podcast covering the latest fintech-related legal topics. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not reflect the views of Bricker Graydon. None of the content included in this podcast is intended to be legal advice and does not create or imply an attorney-client relationship.